Hi, my name's Harini. My name's Camille. My name's Calvina. And this is The News Podcast. Jenna Amini, more commonly known as Masa Amini, was a 22-year-old Kurdish woman stopped by the Morality Police, also known as the Guidance Patrol, in the capital of Iran, Tehran, uh, under the mandatory hijab laws that deemed her to be dressed inappropriately. She was from then taken to a re-education centre, where a few hours later she ended up in a coma in hospital. The government upholds that she had underlying health conditions and suffered from a heart attack. However, witnesses say that this is false and she was beaten instead. Protests then started across Iran against the government and have now spread internationally, with demonstrators chanting women, life, freedom, and the guidance patrol responding to these demonstrators with even more violence. In light of these recent tragic events, we are featuring guest speaker Noreen Ansari, a student at the University of Nottingham, who is an Afghan Muslim, to share her perspective and knowledge on the situation. Thank you for joining us, Noreen. Thank you so much. Would you like to give a bit of introduction to the history and background of Iran? Of course. So during the 19th and 20th century, specifically before the Islamic Revolution, Iran was under a monarchy, specifically under the Shah. And Shah, some people argue that he was very beneficial for the Iranians. This was really only for the upper class elite. So he was really pushing for the modernization and the westernization of Iran. And he was primarily doing this by trying to bring himself to as close proximity to Western culture as he can. And this meant that he was very like anti-hijab. So once again, the freedom of choice was not present even during pre-Islamic regime Iran. So even back then, the um, police were ordered to forcibly remove um, Ted scarves. So once again, there was no freedom of choice. There were many mass protests even during this time where there were some upper class women who wore the headscarf to protest because they thought people should be able to make that choice. But back then they didn't. This is one of the reasons that the Islamist revolution or the Islamic revolution gained as much traction as it did because the Shah and the, the, the monarchy had alienated so many people by being so anti-religious. Um, during 1979, there was Islamic revolution. This was a, basically a fundamentalist dictatorship. This, their headscarf was once again mandatory for Iranian women. The hijab laws were basically mandatory. And this is when we get the Gashti Irshad, which is the guidance patrol slash morality police. And this is when they were basically forced people to um, wear it. They forced women to wear it. Basically, like ever since the Islamic Republic has taken power, so many marginalized groups have been even more in danger. So, for example, ethnic minorities, women, the LGBT plus community. In 1982, the age of marriage was lowered, lowered to nine for young girls. Um, now it's changed to 18, turned to, now it's been changed to 13. Custody of children automatically goes to men in cases of divorce. There's actually this really cool documentary I saw about it. I think it's called um, Divorce Courts in Iran. It's on YouTube and it's actually heartbreaking. And it goes into how a lot of women struggle for like custody. So about Jina Amini, her legal name is Mehsa, but in the Iranian authorities, all the names have to be in Persian. So any other name is not allowed. So her legal name is Mahsa, but her Kurdish name is Jina. This is very important because her family, during the light of her passing, they have been very vocal and they've emphasised her Kurdish ethnicity. Why is the aspect of ethnicity so important in this incident and what role does it play? So as I said before, specifically during the Shah's regime, Iran kept on pushing for a national Persian identity. And this Persian identity was very exclusionary towards the um, marginalized ethnic communities of Iran. So for example, the Azeri people, the Baluch, 
and in this case, the Kurdish. For example, after the 1979 revolution, there was actually a Kurdish revolution as well because they wanted their own autonomous region. But Ayatollah Khomeini, he squashed that re- uprising, basically. So the ethnic minorities have always been very marginalized in Iran. Um, it's been more difficult for them to gain social mobility through school, education, or otherwise. When Jinnah Amini, morality, when the morality police approached her, they heard the fact that when she spoke Persian, she spoke it with a Kurdish accent. So as soon as they heard that, and as soon as they racialized her, basically, from her appearance, that's when they were beating her up, basically, and they were doing the same thing to her brother, who was also very visibly and vocally Kurdish. So, like, racism played a huge part in her passing, not only the extremism of the Islamic regime, but also very much, like, her Kurdish identity. Because, once again, even after the Islamic revolution, there was still the idea of a Persian national identity being pushed. Because Persian is technically an ethnicity, but at that point, the Iranian government were trying to push it as, like, more than an ethnicity, like a national identity, like, everyone should have to be Persian, otherwise you're not Iranian. That was the idea they were pushing. So very much so her ethnicity played a part in her passing. It was very much the idea of she was very much the other. She didn't deserve the same amount of respect as in a Persian Iranian woman. Yeah, we haven't seen that a lot in terms of Western media. All we've been seeing is sort of this, this hijab narrative that they've been driving across and how women who follow Islam are being oppressed. And as part of the protests in the news, like we've seen a lot of women trying to stand in solidarity with Gina and um, they've been burning headscarves. In response to that, I think a lot of people have stated that it's quite un-Islamic in itself to burn the hijab as a symbol or the headscarf but a lot of other people have argued that the women that are burning the hijab are not burning it in a literal sense the key tenet of a hijab is I guess the choice to wear it it can't be forced on anyone and by making it a compulsory thing you know through the the morality police it's no longer a hijab in that metaphorical sense so what is your take on that reaction is it un-Islamic can we say that do the women have the right to reclaim in their own way something that has been forced on them so so violently I totally think that women do have the right to do that because um the hijab if we're talking about the specific word it's not necessarily like because the headscarf is just a piece of cloth that's put around the head um, and that is what women are targeting um but the hijab really is like um it is modesty but it's more than just clothing it's the way that you um compose yourself it's the way that you interact with those around you it's the way that you um, carry yourself within society like being respectful and that kind of thing it's really not um it's not it, it does include your dress um the way that you dress but it's not the whole thing so like someone burning the headscarf is really they're burning what um represents their oppression they're not burning islam they're not disrespecting islam um because really they're, they're just burning a symbol of their oppression it's been used to oppress them because hijab is so, so much more than just your clothing. It's very much about the way you um, carry yourself in society. And if anything, if we want to call anything un-Islamic, how about killing innocent people? That's definitely un-Islamic. Um, oppressing innocent people, not letting them go to school, restricting their social mobility. That is what's un-Islamic. Burning a piece of cloth is not un-Islamic. Yeah, that's really good to clarify. Thanks. If I could just add on to Harini's question as well and go back to her ethnicity and like your Kurdish-Iranian uh, relations. Do you think that like the reason that we focus more on her hijab in the West rather than her being Kurdish is because the West wants to vilify the hijab as a symbol of Islam rather than looking at Kurdish-Iranian relations as a much more nuanced issue? Oh, yeah. I Yeah, I definitely do think that plays a part in it. I think it's because um, for the West they often see the Middle East as a monolith. 
they see them as basically all the same. They don't realize how um, ethnically, linguistically, and historically diverse the region is. For them, they're not aware of the fact that Iran is just Iranian as a nationality, and you can be so many other ethnicities underneath that label. I think a lot of people aren't aware of that complexity behind the identity. Um, so I think for that reason, a lot of people oversimplify it. I think also, I, I do think the West plays a part in it in like some parts, some parts of Islamophobia, where they think, okay, here's here are women being oppressed, and they you know Islam is being used to justify their oppression. Uh, I'm going to support this movement. This way, some people think I'm going to support this movement because I secretly hate Islam, but they won't speak a word on what's happening in France. And um, when ultimately we have to fight for the freedom of choice, that is what's ultimately important is the freedom of choice, right? Regardless of where you are in the world to be able to choose whether you do or don't want to wear it. So I do think that Western Islamophobia does play a part in how a lot of people ignore how ethnicity played a part in it. And ultimately, I'm not saying that the extremist hijab laws didn't play a part in it, because it definitely did. But at the same time, her Kurdish ethnicity also played a part in it. I think, unfortunately, for example, oftentimes in Western mainstream white feminism, they ignore how so many issues are intersectional, if that makes sense. So yes, it's extremism. Yes, it's fundamentalism. But it's also it's also racism and classism because she's not wealthy or upper class or elite. Um, whereas I can promise you so many upper class elite Iranian women wear their headscarf much looser and they never get called out for it. So I do think it's, it's just people trying to oversimplify the issue. It's, I think it's like the struggle to look at something from an intersectional lens. I think that's what it is. Yeah, looking at like all the factors that make a person's identity. Mm, exactly, yeah. In your opinion, what should the Western reaction be in terms of like politicians, diplomacy? What do you think the reaction should be to Iran in terms of penalizations they think is, is necessary? Because I feel like on the one hand, it can be seen that because it isn't a society that you know we're a part of and that we can necessarily relate to, it does it kind of have undertones of somewhat colonialism to then interfere and say that because we disagree with it, it's ultimately wrong? Or is that actually taking the easy way out and sort of you know using anti-colonialism as a as an excuse and, and using it completely incorrectly because we shouldn't stand by and let things like this happen no matter what culture they're from i totally understand both sides of the argument um i do feel like a lot of these issues do come from colonialism so for example um you know a similar thing happened in afghanistan where like after um the US invasion, they basically indirectly funded and created the Taliban essentially. Um, and a lot of Afghans nowadays, we argue that if the US had never invaded, we never would have gotten the Taliban. So I definitely do think it's a similar situation in Iran where like the, the West should never have been involved because um, with the Shah's regime, one of the reasons why it fell apart so quickly was because of Western intervention. And what started as an anti-imperialist movement became a fundamentalist movement. So I definitely do think that the West should not personally, when I, when I say don't personally get involved, I'm saying we should not send troops there. We should not send troops or an army or anything there. Um, I think maybe put pressure on the Iranian government. I think that definitely is valid to put political pressure on the Iranian government um, and saying, hey, this is, you're taking away your citizens' human rights. They should have the freedom to choose. Um, you know, the um, right to religious expression, like that is a basic human right. Um, I feel like putting political pressure on the Iranian government is valid. Um, obviously, no troops. Mm, we're not waging a war or anything. I feel like we should be very careful with our language because, um, you know, these same sentiments, these Islamophobic sentiments have been used as justification for the invasion of Iraq, for Af Afghanistan as well. So obviously, we should be careful with our language. But I think the best thing to do is to put... Um, 
political pressure on the Iranian government, similar to how people have been pressuring the Russian, the Russian government with sanctions and stuff. I feel like that could definitely be useful. But I think ultimately this is something that has to be dealt with through diplomacy, just because I, I fear with the way people have been using certain language like war on women, barbaric, uncivilized, air quotes, all air quotes. I'm not saying that personally. Um, but that kind of language has been used to justify invading third world countries. So I do think diplomacy, political pressure, peace talks, hopefully that would be the best course of action. And also just social media awareness as well. I think you're completely right. Obviously, I think when we start to see things as unnuanced and black and white, that's um, when everything becomes potentially more dangerous than the situation was in the first place. Yeah. Mm. So a little other comment on the hijab. Um, For men in Islam, there is also an equivalent for seeing a woman who is not dressed with a hijab, which is simply lowering their gaze. But clearly for the morality police, uh, they're not abiding by this or they wouldn't have had a reaction. They wouldn't have um, arrested her. They would have just simply lowered their case and carried on with their day. So for some Islamic scholars, the hijab is an essential part of Islam, whereas for others, they argue that it is purely a choice for the woman. So what does the hijab mean and has meant to you in the past or to other Muslim women in your life? Is there any kind of examples that you can give if you're comfortable talking about it? Um, so for me, I used to wear the hijab when I was much younger. I stopped when I was around 12 or 13 um, because I kind of came to realise that I did not have, um, I didn't choose it um, for myself and I wasn't able to choose it for myself. And I felt like um, the hijab is a very personal decision, very, very personal decision. It is technically mandatory within Islam, but Islam also says that there is no compulsion within religion. So if you can, if you choose not to wear it, then that is totally valid. You do not deserve to be punished for it. You do not deserve to be killed for it. I'm very, very privileged to live in a country where I have that freedom of choice. Um, so I was free to choose not to wear it. Um, for me, it was a very personal decision not to wear it, just because, once again, I didn't feel like I had that choice at that time. I wasn't happy wearing it anymore. I wasn't wearing it for like the right reasons. Like It wasn't because of my relationship with God or anything like that. I didn't feel comfortable wearing it. Um, however, I know so many other people in my family specifically who wear it. Um, you know, they wear it as a symbol of, you know, because because when um, you see a woman wearing a headscarf, you immediately associate her with Islam. You immediately um, know that she is a representative of Islam. And, you know, that is such a blessing to be able to immediately be perceived as a Muslim, to immediately be known as a Muslim. Um, obviously, unfortunately, Islamophobia is a thing, but like, technically speaking, who wouldn't be proud of being Muslim, you know? Um and also it's seen as very much like a very personal connection between one person and God. You know, if they feel like they become closer to God by wearing it, that is totally their decision. Um, it's also about in, in Islam, there is very much a focus on the hereafter, on the afterlife. So a lot of people see it as, you know, I'm enduring this in this life because this world is temporary, but I will be rewarded for it in the afterlife. That's another aspect of it. Also um, wanting to not focus on physical appearance, you know, very much like the idea of self-esteem, you know, different societal expectations of women and how they should how they should present themselves that's a huge thing and a lot of people think hijab makes it easier for them to like increase their self-esteem to not focus on their appearance as much but honestly it's um the hijab can mean so many different things for so many different people and what ultimately is so important is the freedom of choice to be able to choose to wear it or not to wear it but it is completely a personal decision and it's between that person and god (laughs) no one else can interfere with that When you stopped wearing the hijab, did you feel like the narrative was that you were more empowered and that you had separated yourself from Islam? You know, when we see women that have chosen themselves to not wear the hijab, we kind of, well, the media anyway is like, oh my God, they're so empowered. You know, they're super feminist, like this and that. Did you kind of experience that? Was there backlash? Honestly, I think, 
Hmm. I want to be careful of how I answer this, but um, I'm definitely answering it. I don't, I didn't get that response from other people of like, oh, you must be more empowered now. I never necessarily felt like that. I think I did feel empowered in, in one sense that I felt like, oh, I now have, I'm now able to make this decision for myself to where it may be once again, one day in the future. But honestly, I felt empowered in the sense that, oh, I can make a choice now. I didn't feel empowered because I took it off. I felt empowered because I was able to make that choice to choose whether or not to wear it. Because I still wear it when I pray, or when I read the Quran, when I go for Eid prayer and stuff. Um, I just don't wear it like every day when I go outside and stuff. Um, so honestly, I didn't, I didn't feel empowered by taking it off, but I felt empowered by making that decision. No, I think it's good to like know the personal story. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's good to know the personal story purely because the way it's told, like Kamal said, is like very vilified. Yeah, I mean, we see Netflix's obsession with removing the hijab from women who wear it. I mean, the amount of Netflix shows where there'll be like a Muslim woman and there's always a scene where she takes it off and it's like, oh my, oh God, my God, look at her hair. And it's like, for what reason, please? You wouldn't like, it's already seen as so problematic when it's actually a woman's body that isn't sort of yeah. like paraded around the screen. Why, why it should be any different with her hair? She's covering it for modesty reasons. It's the same yeah, as we would wear exactly. clothes, right? How has the violence that's come from the situation currently in Iran, both towards the victims of, you know, being beaten for not wearing hijabs, there have been more casualties from the riots themselves as well since then. Has it changed at all your relationship with Islam as a religion or has it not changed at all? Because that's just not how it doesn't affect your life and your religion, the way that you celebrate it. Like how does it change your view of religion as a concept as well? Um, no, it has not changed my um, opinion of Islam because for me, Islam has always been a revolutionary leftist religion. It's always advocated for the freedom of choice. It gave women rights um, in, in a region of the world where, where baby baby girls used to be buried alive. And Islam came and, you know, eradicated that. Um, you know, it advocates for the redistribution of wealth. It lets women inherit in a way that women were not allowed to inherit in other parts of the world. Like for me, Islam has always advocated so much for women um you know the prophet himself he stopped a whole army because his wife lost a necklace you know so um like so many parts of islam have advocated for women for so long and so many other marginalized communities i don't see a government who is manipulating the religion for their own agenda i do not see them as a representation of islam so when i see like as i said before when i've seen women like burn their headscarf when i've seen them say like death to the dictator death to the regime they're not talking about Islam. So I don't think their representation of Islam and it doesn't change my relationship because I know they're misrepresenting it. I know they're manipulating it. Right. That's, that makes a lot of sense. I hope it didn't seem like a leading question uh, or anything. No worries, like it's totally fine. Leading on from that, to what extent do you think that religion should be separate from the government in terms of all countries or specifically Iran? Do you think that actually religion has any place in the way that a country is run and should it? I personally, I'm, I 100% believe in secularism. I believe that the religion should be 100% separate from the state. Um, because as much as I love Islam and as much as it means to me and as, as, as leftist as I know that it is, people can manipulate it so easily. People can um, manipulate it, change the rules and regulations. They can. It's very easy to fit into an, an, an agenda. Um, like, for example, Saudi Arabia banned women from driving for how long, you know, and there's nowhere in Islam that says women can't do that. Um, you know, Afghanistan has banned women from going to work. And yet um, the prophet himself, his first wife was literally his employer. Um, so it, it, it's just it's so easy to manipulate and to change in order to fit to an agenda. So um, as much as I love Islam, I don't trust any government to put it into practice properly. So I do believe in secularism. I do believe in um 
separation between religion and um, the government and, and laws as well. Um, you know, for example, in Turkey, they are a secular country, but they are still a Muslim majority. Um, and I think it's um, it's amazing they have that freedom of religion there because as soon as you force someone into something, it pushes them away from it more, if that makes sense. That's why so many people in Iran have an aversion to Islam and the headscarf because it's been shoved down their throat for so many years. Um, so I believe in secularism. People should have the freedom to choose. And, you know, it's, it's just too risky because people can manipulate it and change whatever parts of religion that is convenient to them. And who's going to hold them accountable? The government. But it's the government that's doing it. So, yeah, I think I believe in secularism. It should be separate. You made a really important point earlier about how it gets labelled by both the West and the Iranian government as Islamic when it is directly un-Islamic. And these protests are all about the right to choose in so many different ways, which is, in fact, a key tenet in Islam, like you said, um, there is no compulsion in Islam. So it's about the freedom to choose what to wear, religion, the freedom of sexuality, etc. And I was talking to my friend Faria Chowdhury, who mentioned the, the greeting in Islam, which translates to peace be upon you. And she said that there is nothing peaceful about this. Um, open quote, there is an Indian journalist and podcaster, Namrata Zakaria, and she has spoken about women not being allowed to wear the burqa in India, as well as in other parts of the world. So, for example, in France, Austria. On the Masa Amini case, she said that at the base, what all these women are fighting for is simply the right to choose. To wear, not to wear. To work, not to work. It's not even about the hijab, really, just the right to have control over your own life, end quote. And I think that basically reiterates exactly what you've said. It isn't an Islamic thing at all and like you said this it's not representing Islam for you or for the vast majority of Muslims and we see this um, suppression of women's choice to wear in a very different way than in Iran but in the West um, so for example some countries where Muslims are the complete minority so several parts of Europe They've been outright banning the burqa or discussing banning burqa and hijab in public spaces. So like we said in France, move into a more secular um, style. But then also in some majority Muslim countries, so Tunisia, Kosovo, where I'm from, um, these spaces have all banned burqa in schools, uni, government buildings, etc. And then there's other majority Muslim countries, for example, Iran, Afghanistan, the Aceh province in Indonesia, which has made hijab compulsory. So like both you and Fari have said, it shows it isn't about Islam and instead it is literally just about controlling women and controlling people in general as well because obviously in these countries there's a lot of things that men can't do as well so whether it's muslims who are disagreeing with full body and facial coverings in islam or islamophobic ministers in western europe who hide under the label of secularism as a defense there is this widespread desire which has always existed and continues to exist um to oppress women's freedom and clothing and work and education. Yeah, I totally agree, 100%, yeah. I think everything that's been going on in Iran recently through the protests and the um, reaction from the government and the situation in the first place was really highlighting how difficult the reality is for women day to day in Iran, given that no matter who you are or what your beliefs are, you have to wear a hijab no matter what. And this always places you at risks of confrontation for wearing this hijab in, in an incorrect way. For example, many Iranian women have reported constantly living in fear, particularly as these protests evolve. 
even though their voices are being heard, they are still risking their lives fighting for a seemingly very basic right, which is true. Every time we see a headline about the protests currently in Iran, there's been another casualty and often another fatality, most of whom are women. Okay. Um, so I'll just leave the, that paragraph for, for you to for you to say um, how you want. But um, So how do you think, Noreen, that this speaks to us in the West in terms of the rights that we have as women and that we can enjoy in the UK? I think 100% it plays into like very much the idea of just the freedom to choose, to be able to choose what we want to wear, um, however we wish to um, express ourselves. Um, because I'm not sure how much you guys are aware of this, but like, um, even people who do wear the hijab, the burqa, the niqab, all these different like coverings, they're still often sexualized. They're still sexualized. They're still hate crime against. They're still like fetishized and discriminated against. It, like even though it is worn to protect themselves from that kind of thing, they're still susceptible to that. You know, especially like ugh, the, the disgusting comments from our prime minister about, you know, Muslim women looking like letterboxes. And like it, it's honestly, and especially the way the hate crimes have jumped 375% according to this article. And it, it just, it really speaks to um, the fact that no matter what women do, no matter which part of the world they're in, they're still going to be judged. They're still going to be hate crime for whatever it is that they do, just for like simply existing. Once again, showing that women are not the problem. Um, and I think no matter what, even though it is in one part of the um, one part of the world and it might not directly affect people in the West, we still feel it. Like I, st- I would feel the pain of a woman anywhere in the world, like not being able to choose how she dresses, not being able to have control over like how she looks. Because I think it's more than just um, um, the way that, I think it's more than just simply your appearance. It's like, are you valued as a human being or not, if that makes sense? Because um, it's very much in like in a lot of, in these oppressive um, regimes, right? Women are seen as pieces of meat. Um, they, they are not seen as human beings. So I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. It may not directly affect us in the West, but we have the exact same issue of um, even, um, even women who wear the hijab and the burqa in Western countries, they still face that same, you know, they face that, that same discrimination, that same like like social like shunning, if that makes sense. So it still affects us, maybe not directly, but it still affects us. Do you think that like, um, like not only is the West unnuanced in its understanding of women in Islam, but it's unsympathetic? Like, like what does that mean uh, as a Muslim woman yourself? Um, yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, I'm trying to be careful how I phrase this so it makes sense, but it's like, for example, with what happened in Ukraine, um, not only was that like 100%, that was like so tragic, right? Like no matter what, I feel for a whole group of people that have lost their country, they've lost their homes, they've had to flee. Like war is terrifying regardless of where in the world it is, mm-hmm. right? But do you guys remember that one reporter that was like, oh, I would have expected this from countries like, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq. I yeah, oh, 100%, yeah. I wouldn't have expected this from like blonde haired, blue eyed people. Unfortunately, as you said, there is that same unsympathetic attitude towards women in other countries where they're like, oh, but oppression is expected for them. It's normal for them to be oppressed or whatever. Um, And so a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's going to happen in their country anyways. Unfortunately, there is that mindset from some people. And I think that's so, so disappointing and it's so saddening because um, no, it's being oppressed is um, not normal. It should never be normal because why are we acting like women in the West aren't oppressed either? Um, so it's like then this is what I think is so important about being an intersectional feminist I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for the liberation of all women no matter where they are in the world no matter what any other labels they use no matter what else there is in their identity like I'm gonna fight for the liberation of all women and if that woman happens to be on the other side of the world 
so be it, you know. Um, so I think it's it's just so important that like um we we stop thinking that like oppression is expected or it's normalized for them because no it's not because um women Absolutely. will never be free if they're still like someone from women from another community that aren't free if that makes sense so yeah no 100 i don't think you're a feminist if you're not an intersectional feminist no obviously in light of this situation in iran we've seen a huge increase in police brutality deadly force and police presence in you know response to the situation and social media has also been cut in Iran, which makes protesting harder. It's incredibly unsafe. People are being killed during protests by police retaliation, and we're not hearing about it. You know, people are being cut off from their families in Iran. And historically, there's also been similar things that have happened where, like in 2019, there was a massacre which saw the mass killing of protesters. The internet was shut down completely. People weren't aware of what was going on. And in that protest, a 17-year-old was killed by security forces, and her name was Nika Shakarami. And in the protest, they returned her body to her family with her skull and nose broken, which is absolutely horrific. However, this uproar is huge and widespread. And even as of a couple of days ago, like young girls were taking off their hijabs to attend school. So they're protesting and it persists even when it's not in a demonstration setting. Um, so it, it really permeates their everyday life. Um, and, you know, they've taken down images of the dictator, they're standing on them. So I guess that kind of, it makes us question like what, is actually going to happen now like obviously you don't have a crystal ball you can't tell us exactly but do you think that we'll see like another like Iranian revolution what does that mean for feminism I'm not gonna lie I think there most likely will be I'm not sure um, how it's gonna look I'm not sure how it's gonna be carried out but I definitely do think so because um you know if, if I know anything about like Asians so West Asians Central Asians South Asians I know anything about my people if they're unhappy with something they'll let you know I think there will be a revolution because this this is like inhumane the way that the government is treating its own people um and this is across literally anyone in Iran be it if they identify as Persian or not they're part of the LGBT plus community if they're a woman or a man or anything else like it's it's affecting everyone um and especially since there's such a huge population of um, I want to say like immigrants to Iran as well um, you know, for example, a lot of people in Afghanistan have immigrated to Iran after Taliban invasion. Um, I have an uncle, actually, who studies there right now. Um, and he's told me himself that, like, yeah, there's no way people are going to put up with this any longer. You know, the people of Iran, they overthrew their Shah, their king. They're 100% they can overthrow this current government. And I think just so many, like, not only just police brutality, but, like, you know, women's rights, LGBT plus rights, or so much racism, you know, institutional racism. Um, I think I've mentioned before, immigrants, it's, it's very difficult difficult for them to get to get into good schools um it's difficult for them to like get good jobs as well for social mobility and not to mention there's a huge social media outpour like, even though social media has been cut off in some places in Iran it's still alive and very much going on in the west so I think there's going to be so much political and social pressure on the Iranian government um so if the Iranian government itself doesn't fix up or like improve in any way I think the Iranian people would definitely stand up to its own government because I, I think like when especially when you see like for example um Niko Shakarami the way like she was I think her funeral was on the same day as her 17th birthday. Like she was that young and going out to a protest. Like so many women have risked their lives, like everything to like protest. So I think they won't stop until there's actual change. Um, they won't like they're risking their lives in order to see a better future for themselves, for their own countries. So I think 100% there is going to be one um, because it's not, I don't think the Iranian people can go on living like this, you know, having their human rights restricted like this. 
Um, so I think there will be, um, and I hope the world will be there to support the Iranian people when it does happen. No, yeah, when you say it like that, it, it gives me chills. Like it is actually inhumane, it's horrific, and it's not being described in enough in, mm. in that way. Um, just before we move on to the next point as well, I think everything that you say about how, you know, the way that we're seeing this violence is just wrong because we're not emphasising it enough and we're not seeing the extent of it enough. I mean, I think there's so much rhetoric in the UK, uh, in France, in Germany, in many Western European countries, and certainly in the US. I mean, obviously, we do not have to cast our memory back to see the quote-unquote ban on Muslims under Donald Trump. How do you think we can change that mentality from being from seeing Islam and Muslims as the threat as actually seeing them often as victims? I mean, we have these Muslim women who are being literally terrorized by the Iranian government at this point through their protests. We also have, you know, Muslims in the Gaza Strip in Palestine. We have Muslims in Myanmar. We have the Muslims in China. This, I mean, the Xinjiang region when we were in sixth form already had more re-education centers, you know, to be read as labor or concentration camps than in the whole of Europe during the second world war. Again, Muslims being terrorized by their government. I mean, what do you think that we should do? I, either specifically to do with Iran or the way that the West sees Muslims in general to change that narrative from being predators of the world to actually being victims in so, so, so many global situations that as a country like the UK, we should be helping out with. I fully agree. I think it starts with education, first and foremost, within schools. Where um, I mean, I was very lucky in my secondary school. I remember we learned about um, the Muslims in Myanmar. Um, I think it's so important that we start with like, um, we learn about the complexities b- behind um, colonialism as well. Um, I think, unfortunately, the British education system barely touches upon British colonialism and how much of an effect that had on the world. Um, because, to be honest, a lot of the Islamic politics you see now is reactionary um, to imperialism. Like, it's on a lot of it is a direct result of imperialism and colonialism. It comes from, first and foremost, education. I think learning about who the true enemy is, because... Um, I'm talking specifically about British politics here. So the Tories for decades now, they've pushed this narrative that um, Muslims and immigrants are the problem. They've constantly pushed this narrative for decades, ever since the Windrush generation, right? But really well and truly, it's the upper class elite. It's the top 1%. They are um, the enemy here. You know, they privatise the industries. They have horrible um, working conditions for like the working class. Um, They've like gentrified so many areas. They are the enemy but um, society has been brainwashed and we've had so much propaganda thinking that immigrants and Muslims are enemies. Um, And I think unfortunately we are still feeling the effects of that propaganda and that miseducation even today. Uh, I'm sorry, this this, this topic I'm so passionate about because it's really frustrating to me. Um, Like it's, and and that's just from decades of propaganda, not even in schools, that was just just propaganda on its own um, that's been pushed for so long. Um, so and that's one of the reasons why Brexit happened as quickly as it did, because of that, that false um, and misinformation and that propaganda that was spread. So I think it starts with education that we learn about um, the complexities behind um, Britain's colonial history, how they've exacerbated, exacerbated a lot of the problems in a lot of Muslim countries, how a lot of Muslim countries in their politics is a direct reaction to colonialism and imperialism. Um, I think also, um, I think the British government should have a formal apology to its formal um, colonies as well, Um, and also to stop profiting off of them, because to this day, they still tax a lot of their colonies as well, Um, because it just reinforces the idea that we're better, or like the British are better, and everyone else should submit to them. Um, 
but yeah I think first and foremost education is the most powerful tool social media as well like social media awareness like social media has become so so powerful in so many different um social movements so for example um in the situation in Palestine as well as well so free Palestine I'm pretty sure Palestinian activists, they called it, it was an internet revolution or something like that. So much of the situation um, is being broadcasted and being spread around through the internet and through social media. Um, and I 100% agree, like it is a social media revolution, to be honest. Um, and I think social media presence, that's also going to lead to like government pressure as well. So, for example, also, um, you know, back when Afghanistan was taken over by the Taliban, one thing that I did a lot and I pushed other people to do is like email your MPs, speak to your MPs, speak to your local representatives, because then they can speak to the other appropriate people and then they can put more social pressure on the relevant um, government bodies to in, um, to induce some change. Um so yeah, it comes from education, speaking to other local representatives, um, social media awareness, and yeah, political and social pressure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, I've had so much fun. I'm definitely coming back.